Sales conversations where both buyers and sellers win are rare and plagued by the cringe. We've all felt it. It's that sinking feeling that both buyer and seller get when the conversation is going off the rails. My name is Adam Clay. I'm the CEO of Rainmakers. I've spent 25 years building and leading global sales organizations and thinking about the sales conversation. At The Cringe, we put the sales conversation under the microscope and explore pathways to ensuring that sales reps, leaders, and managers conduct great sales conversations. Today, my guest is Matt Cameron, CEO of Sassy Sales Leadership. Matt, welcome to The Cringe. Adam, great to be here today talking to you from fabulous Las Vegas. All right. Wonderful. So for starters, tell us a little bit about Sassy Sales Leadership and what your company does. Well, Sassy Sales Leadership is probably the most misspelled uh, company name in the world, but also correct. Uh, but as the name suggests, we work exclusively with SaaS companies, typically venture-backed or private equity-backed. Our focus is helping people with the uh, bending the growth curve, specifically focused on helping with the go-to-market side of the house in sales management frontline um, and executive leadership. Thank you. And how about a few words about how you arrived into this role, a bit about your experience in the sales industry? Sure. So I've been at it for just under 30 years now, always in technology. Originally started out in the uh, systems integration and hardware world, it's like Hewlett Packard and, and IBM. Uh, but in 2005, I came across this company with a crazy idea when I was in Sydney, Australia. They said they were going to put software on the internet, uh, and you've probably heard of them, uh, salesforce.com. And uh, I had five fabulous th years there, uh, leading the enterprise sales organization for Australia and New Zealand. And uh, so five years at Salesforce really got me addicted to the idea of recurring revenue. And I've been in the United States since 2010, um, had various VP sales roles, Series A, Series B companies. Um, and uh, an organization some folks will remember is Yammer, which was the first uh, enterprise social network like Slack. And uh, we had a great run. Four years, we sold to Microsoft, um, and that sort of got integrated into the Office 365 business. And for the last seven years, um, I've been working at Sassy. I founded Sassy um, at that time. And my real, my focus was, I felt like uh, there was something missing from the South leadership mix. Uh, and really, that was uh, context-specific uh, leadership and management training for what we do. Uh, and also, as, as I know we're going to talk about, Integrating emotional intelligence is sort of a core pillar you know, of what leaders focus on in terms of their development in addition to technical skills. And it was when I learned those things about the work that you do at the company that I was so eager to, to have you on the show. So as is our tradition here, my, my first question is, what cringe have you felt most acutely in the sales conversations that you've been a party to? I think it stretches all the way back to the beginning of my career. Nothing's changed, and there's really two things that leap out at me. Number one, probably by a wide margin, is lack of contextual empathy for the buyer. And what I mean by that is getting your mindset beyond the sales process and thinking the human that I'm speaking to, what they've been doing for the 10 minutes before I spoke to them, what the demands of them on this day are, and then more broadly, the demands of their role, so that I understand how I should be engaging with them as I would anyone in my social circle. And the second part of it is just being present, you know, um, active listening, 
and not stay on scripts, uh, script rails is probably how I would term it, you know, and, and, you know, there are so many times I listen to a, a conversation or I give someone selling me a cue and they completely miss it and they, they stay heading on wherever they were going. So those two things I would say. So take us through one of those conversations where you experienced that, that cringe, just to help color our understanding of what you are suggesting with an example. Let me focus on the first one, which is the, um, the, the empathy for context. And can I throw myself under the bus as the person who did the cringy? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Activity? Yeah. All right. Go for um, it. I always feel safer criticizing myself. When I was 26 years old, I was working for an outsourcing business called Electronic Data Systems, EDS. And what we did is we did large outsourcing. So we'd literally buy entire IT groups from a company and sell back those services more, more cheaply. And the deal I have in mind is we were going to take over the um, ERP system. So uh, it was SAP, ERP system, all the way. And then also uh, manage the business from the network through to the desktop, sort of an end-to-end takeover. And um, the way those sorts of deals work is it's all about um, speaking to the CFO about um, cost reduction. In the way, I was, I was just, well, this is a big deal. You know, this is a $20 million deal. And it's a young man to be a part of a group like that. So we had a big, big team. And the cringe part of it was the way I led the presentation, the way we talked about was 100% focused on cost reduction and technical competency. So we're talking numbers, feeds and speeds, and I've got a room full of stakeholders, including business owners, uh, the people that were receiving the service, where the contextual empathy just went out the window. I should have realized that IT is there to serve the business. So the business is the customer, and I should have been talking about the customer's customer, how the experience of the people in the business using our services and technology would be improved, painting that picture, telling that story. And we lost the deal. So a vendor painted unicorns and rainbows for the end user, and they have, right, and how they did that for the technology was with secondary. They really connected at a human experience level. So tell us what you did about that. How how did you fix it, either then and there or over time? So I couldn't fix it. And the fun uh, epilogue to that was that that other company actually, um, three months after you know getting the, the letter of intent or whatever, uh, lost the deal because they'd actually fudged the numbers to undercut us as well. And then the poor customer said, you know what, this is nonsense. <laughs> You're all idiots. We're going to keep it in-house. So that was the way to kill a big deal. But um. The, the, you know, the learning I got from that, I think I took into Salesforce and that's kind of a fun one uh, to talk you through. So um, at that time, I was leading the sales effort as a, an individual contributor. When I first joined Salesforce, um, I was carrying a bag and I was selling to uh, Telecom New Zealand, which is the AT&T of New Zealand. It was a thousand seats back in 2006. And, and here's the interesting thing. So imagine this, and Adam, you're, you're going to smile at this. Thousand seats was telco 600 were for a value-added reseller subsidiary of theirs that happened to be microsoft crm's largest reseller and they were also bidding on the deal no kidding so they were basically bidding on their own business so of course (laughs) i'm no idiot and uh you know the language you and i would use is column fodder right like we're just there to make up the numbers and so i did what any good rep would do and i declined to bid 
And then I get a call from the COO's assistant said, um, Chris wants to have a conversation with you about this. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So now contextual empathy, I'm thinking, what motivates him to do this? I and mean, he's a COO of a 5,000, yeah, not huge in US terms, but probably a pretty big company in New Zealand. 5,000 business organization, and he's calling me about a CRM deal. So this must really matter to him. There are other vendors he could go to to make up the third. Why, you know, why is he coming back? So I thought about it and I thought, well, um, I've got to find out what's important to him at an executive and a business level such that he would take the time to speak with me there's nothing to do with technology. I know that for sure. Because you know, he's COO. And so I actually got Mark Benioff on the phone. I said, okay, Mark, here's the deal, blah, blah, blah. Here's the role I want you to play. My job is to be, you're the executive. My job is to be the guy who tells the COO why, if I was him, I would definitely buy from the other company. And then, of course, I had him retort every single point and then I pressured him. So, he, you know, he said, it makes sense for us to go with you because you'll faster time to value. I said, tell me more. And then he basically wrote my proposal for me over the phone. Where the contextual empathy comes from is as he was speaking to me, it became very clear that he was worried. He had something he needed to accomplish quickly. And he felt fast solution versus an on-premise solution was the least risk fastest way to get there it was very believable and so forth and so on and where i felt that i'd learned something from the original exercise was that i didn't talk to him about tech at all it was i mean that just didn't even come into the equation um it was all about risk mitigation and hitting some big rock that he needed to knock over and uh i'm very proud of that deal because there was myself, my leader, and a sales engineer, and the Oracle team told me afterwards they had 17 people on it. So, you know, it was a, it was a you know, David versus Goliath situation, but because of that empathy for the executive context, we won the deal. What a remarkable story. And, you know, for those listening to the podcast, back then, Salesforce and Oracle were bitter rivals. Salesforce was the disruptive player in a space that Oracle otherwise, were it not for Salesforce, just would have would have dominated. And of course, we all know how that story ends. So thank you. Let me ask let me ask you, what do you think it is that prevents salespeople from contextually expressing empathy or sincerely and authentically listening? There are two areas that I think cause this issue. Um, one is that people are dealing in the abstract um, and that, that it's a bit like reading a book about something that's happened, about a, a scene that's playing out in front of you versus participating in the scene. But one thing from an EQ standpoint that I think about is a sense of self-regard. You need to consider yourself an intellectual peer in terms of delivering the outcome that your counterpart is looking for and know that you're bringing value, asserting your needs and expressing your value as a thought partner, not a vendor. And that's really hard if you're early in your career. It gets easier over time because you've had a number of ads and you, you start to you know get more confidence. Just to double click on that, Matt, 
I think what you're saying is that what prevents people from doing this sort of thing has something to do with the fundamental belief system that sellers carry into the conversation about their position or their relative status. Yeah, 100% it's a mindset thing. Um, and so emotional intelligence is a concept. When I say that, people think about interpersonal skills, you know, charismatic, charming, that sort of thing. I mean, that's really just one dimension. Um, but um, there, 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 there are 15 that we measure quantitatively, right? And they're sort of grouped uh, into, into element, uh, three elements per area. And one, the area I'm talking about is self-perception. And, and closely related to that, of course, is uh, self-expression. We Individual sellers need to be intentional uh, about this. And I'll give you an example. When I'm selling into um, uh, industrial, so it's forestry or uh, um, concrete, um, paper, uh, you know, heavy manufacturing, if I would dip into the world and, you know, what is the language they use? What do they read? And, you know, back in the day, I, I read this... Um, read this book called uh, uh, The Goal, which talked about the theory of constraints, which is critical in supply chain. Nothing to do with software. But immersing yourself in the world of the buyer just gives you that wonderful level of confidence because you speak their language. It, think about your level of, of confidence as you're going into these engagements. Where, where are the blind spots? Where are you feeling uncertainty? And most of those, you know, be it be it in terms of um, the technology itself, that's simple. And sales and admin and whatever else should be able to help you with that. But more so, the role to which you're addressing. If you're speaking to a CFO, you're going to speak the language of finance. And I, one of my favorite sayings, if I, can, if I may say so, if you don't know your IRRs from your ARRs or your IRRs from your Rs, um, then you're screwed <laughs> when it comes to speaking to CFOs, right? That's right. Um, so, so, you know, do that. And then, and again, you know, if you're speaking to banks or institutional banking, you better know what they do for a living. You better know how they make their money. You better understand what the customer's customer looks like. And that's just going to really give you that sense of, I deserve to be at this table. I understand the problem. And so that sort of brings me to the second point, I think, that obfuscates for people is, or gets in the way for people, is impulse control. You know, being present and critically assessing the input you're getting on the other side of the table versus driving process on the rail. And a great example would be, you know, I hear what I think is a buying signal and I just get excited about it and immediately jump to some form of trial close or something like that. Or if someone asks me for something, I immediately say, oh yes, and I'll agree to it because it feels like progress. Very hard for people to get around that. And in the days of addiction to dopamine and instant gratification, I think people are getting worse at impulse control, to be honest with you. Yeah, Matt, you talked about some really critical things there, and I want to circle back to make sure that I understood it and just take a shot at verbalizing it for our audience. So what I think I heard you say is that having the right self-perception, the right belief about your status relative to the buyer. It gives you the right amount of confidence to have a, a conversation. At the same time, you have to be abundantly present in the conversation and a little less concerned with the structure of the conversation that you might be asked to adhere to 
from the company that you work for. For the audience, can you tie that all together with regards to my role as a salesperson and my principal job, which is to understand and listen to what the customer has to say? Yes. The doctor-patient analogy, I think, is perfect. No doctor is insecure in giving you specific prescriptive advice, and they never make assumptions if they're a good doctor. So I try to coach people, put your doctor hat on. So when we role play, you're the doctor, I'm the patient. I come in and say, hey, I've Googled it. I've got this thing on my back and I think you need Band-Aid and that'll sort it out. Salesperson, sure, I'll sell you a Band-Aid. But do we do that? No, doctors don't do that. They go, give me a look at the thing on your back. We're going to talk to you. All right. And, and, right. and the patient says, well, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to go get an x-ray. I don't think I need one. Do you know what? Uh, here's why it's important for you to have an x-ray. And here are the things that could happen if we don't have an x-ray. So for us to move further forward, I need you to accept that we're going to have an x-ray. And that translates directly to great sales process, does it not? And so I, I would encourage listeners to think about that and then and think of the implications of how you would engage with another person if you were in that didactic, if you were in that relationship with someone else where you are the doctor, they are the patient. It changes the way most people think about things. I agree with you. I think that's a very powerful metaphor. And just to extend something you said earlier to this part of the conversation, I have, and perhaps you have seen, salespeople who become real masters of their domain. They become real experts in selling and servicing customers in the industry they're focused on. And if they lose sight of the doctor-patient dynamic, what can happen is that they can become overly prescriptive because they've seen everything before. Over a few years, because they've seen so much and they've helped so many customers, they actually start to skip the diagnostic process, which I think from a buyer's perspective serves a real purpose. Can you give me your thoughts on that? I 100% agree. I mean, thinking about it again, having empathy for the buyer, you might have sold this thing a hundred times. They're going to buy it for the first time in many cases. I, I, I have a, a, an example I like to give, um, a fun one. My, um, my wife is a circus artist. That's why we live in Vegas. And if you've ever been to Cirque du Soleil, think about this for a moment. They perform the same show twice a night, six days a week, 365 days a year. So for them, it might be their literally their fourth time doing the same thing six days in a row. For you, that's the first time. So what many of the the, the troops do is before they go out backstage, they get together, they recite a uh, recite a chant, hands together, and then show time. They literally shout it because it just they just need that energy to realize that they are there to give somebody the best performance of their life. I love that. Well, that certainly that certainly makes makes the point a, a clear one. All right. Well, I, I have I have lots of questions about your wife's profession. Sounds like she <laughs> works uh, for Cirque du Soleil, but we'll have to table that for, uh, for a later conversation. All right. Terrific, terrific metaphor. So what do you think everybody gets wrong, Matt, about EQ's importance in the sales process? Most people think that... Uh, charisma is the sole partner to uh, technical excellence in their process. 
and and it's much more than that. Um, it's um, your problem solving capabilities, your decision making capabilities, your reality testing. I mean, these are all words that for some people may not be familiar, but in the the model that I think about, um, we brand it. We call it revenue EQ. But the, the, there's a there's a, um, a, a the broadest EQ assessment system in the world is called the EQI 2.0. It's an EQ inventory. And for those not familiar with EQ in general, EQ is not static like IQ. Uh, one of the things, one of the things we measure is is optimism, and 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 when you um, join a new company, you'll be very optimistic usually, right? But your sense of self regard actually might come down because you're a newbie. You don't know the products, you don't know the people. Can I be successful? I'm not sure. So it's a very dynamic thing, and I think what people get wrong is thinking that you know all I need to do is sit with enablement, learn the process, get mental environment managed learn the step and just I get that right and then I show up authentically and 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 you know uh, an, an unlikable person um I, I I say there are three types of salespeople um there's the engineer who just is very good at transaction sales because they will follow the process to a T they'll never deviate their CRM's always up to date they check all the boxes that's the engineer and they can be successful in a simple non-complex transactional sale there's the um, the designer, I call them, and typically you find them in enterprise, and they just don't follow process at all. They wave their magic wand, um, they 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 sprinkle the fairy dust over you, and everybody likes them. Most people like them, uh, but uh, you know they're, they're very enthusiastic. <laughs> yeah, they light up a room when they come in. However, right. ter- terrible. I can never tell whether their forecast is going to be correct. They never adhere to process because that's not for me. I don't need to do it. That's the designer, and then the ones that I've really impressed by. Are the people that are, of course, the combination of the two, I call them the architect, because they have all that charismatic flair. The fact that when I walk in a room, I want to be with them because they're just good to be around, and you know that, that attracts uh, people to them. And yet, uh, they they have that engineering mindset. So as they're going, they are following that process and going. And so, layered onto that thinking for me, is the true architect has. By, well, the balance score in all of these EQ competencies, and something I could share with you is that people think, oh, I want a high score like IQ. Depends on your context, because imagine if um, I'm highly assertive, high self-regard, low flexibility. Now, what am I like in a sales exercise when I come and meet you? Like you can, you can play it out in your mind, right? Now, that can be helpful. I'll tell you when it's helpful is when you are... Um, managing a critical process like putting a rocket into space or a medical procedure you never flex from what procedure right you know you can do the job and you get it done right um but not necessarily in discovery call all right so matt in in your business you talk about revenue eq i'd like to give you a moment to clarify what that is because it's a phrase that if we didn't spend a moment on it Listeners might walk away thinking, well, gee, that's just a, a gimmick. So help us understand yeah. what you mean by revenue EQ. Yeah. So in 94, I read Daniel Goldman's book, like the, the original EQ book, Emotional Intelligence book. I just say EQ is the measure of emotional intelligence. And I was so excited by it. It was a renovation. I gave like 10 copies to my friends. I was like, look, that IQ stuff. I've been telling you for it. And then over the years, I realized that we need a way to take that quantitative assessment of these 15 different, I didn't know it was 15 back then, but I do now, 
uh, elements to figure out and predict where our EQ profiles will impact our role. So if you think specifically sales, we do sales management, CS, all that, but sales, you know, what, which of those factors impact our ability to do great prospecting, delivery, solution validation, Okay, negotiations so forth, because because there are different combinations at every different stage. You know, um, being highly assertive and 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 inflexible during discovery not helpful. Very yeah. helpful at the end when you're trying to get paperwork done. All so right. You have to, so what we do is we give a, a questionnaire based assessment to give people their metrics across. And what we we're the only company in the world that does this. We've got a translation engine then that says, and here's your personalized prescription for you, Adam in terms of how you need to be thinking about your discovery and prompt questions. And uh, and we do the same for managers and coaching, you know? So that's where Revenue EQ is born. So we work with these companies, um, you know, do the assessments and then give everyone prescriptions and then train them with, with and give them techniques and, and uh, exercises to do to develop their competencies. I mean, a simple one is mindset change. If my self-regard's not quite right, you know, or if I have um, self-expression issues, Right, we 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 train that. So we've seen EQ companies go out there and train those soft skills, call them soft if you like, for for leadership work for years. But nobody's done it in the context of of selling, and and that's what gets me excited. Uh, so Matt, I've I've heard you talk today about mindset, about the importance of being present, about active listening, which I think you and I can agree has never been harder in an age of record distraction, particularly for salespeople, uh, yeah. given all of the noise created in the industry by the very tools that sellers are asked to use and by the very methods and processes they are asked to abide by. So for our audience, do you have some tips about mm-hmm. how to be maximally present, mindful, and be the best possible listener in a conversation? despite forces that might be working against our best interests in that conversation. When I get on a call, I'm going to call with you now. My Slack is turned off. My WhatsApp turned off. All distractions are gone. Most salespeople leave Slack on during calls and even respond to them, which blows my mind. I've seen it, you know, and I'm like, and it's so distracting as a buyer when someone, you can just see their eyes flick down. You know, you know they're not paying attention, so that has to go. When you're in a sales call, you can have distraction. But coming back to the word of mindfulness, so for the last 10, 12 years, I had a really consistent meditation practice. Um, and for me, Monday to Friday in the morning, I get up early, I do my exercise, and I meditate 15-ish minutes. I don't do it on the weekend. Why? Because it's in my routine during the week. It's not in my routine on the weekend. So I could do better. But I'm just being truthful about how that works. And so that, if you've done consistently, I've shown that it allows you to be far more present because you're less susceptible to noise. And before a critical call, two things I do. That first thing I do is a short bit of breath work. And that sounds all new Asian. It, all it is, is find the technique that works for you. Take a deep breath slowly. Perhaps you do box breathing where you hold it for about the same time and then you let it out slowly lowers your blood pressure, lowers your heart rate, and then you're ready to be present. And then, excuse me, the other way, and the second thing, before I do that, I do my visualization. Like literally just before I got on the call with you today, Adam, that my breath works, I'm like, I'm here, I'm settled, all the nonsense that happened before this call is gone, I'm flushed. But the visualization for me 
comes back to who am I in this call? Who am I in this call? And where that first came real for me was when I was young and I was very scared of public speaking. And to the point where I, I, I had a, 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 an introduction, I was just introducing a speaker one time. I was devastatingly nervous and it was such a terrible experience for me. I thought, I'm never going to let this happen again. And I used a sports psychology session to help me with that. And so when I go on, what did I visualize? Visualize myself as the successful lecturer that I was, I wasn't, um, that was stepping out to speak to his student body. Now, when you have that mindset and you've convinced yourself that that's who you are in this moment, it's very easy to step onto a stage and tell your students how it is. So whenever I get on a call, I decide who I'm going to be. What is my persona now? I do that. Just wonderful, Matt. And uh, I really love what you said, particularly in this day and age. There, It's almost as if there's a precursor to the call. And the precursor to the call is that do what it takes to be maximally attentive mm -hmm. to the person that you're talking to in the conversation. Because I think humans are very sensitive to your earlier point, to those that aren't paying attention. And they'll remember that far more than anything you said. Would you agree with that? People remember how you made them feel, not what you said. There you go. I'm curious to see how all of this plays out and here at the cringe you know we make it a point to role play these ideas so we can hear what they sound like in conversation so let's role play this a little bit to illustrate just pretend for a moment that i'm i'm an enterprise buyer and in this case perhaps i'm a little too hot to trot on next steps how would you use this as an opportunity to both challenge me and build simultaneously a more authentic connection or relationship. Is that a fair setup? Sure. Let's do that. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Okay. So what have you asked me for? What's your hot what next step thing you want to get into that feels a little early to me as a seller? Yeah, I'd I'd like to do I'd like to do a, a two month proof of concept with your product, really take this thing for a test drive and at the end of it I'll let you know how I'll proceed. Sound, sounds good, Adam. So I, I think a proof of concept is a great way uh, to de-risk the outcome for you. Um, and in my experience, uh, we need to make sure that every stakeholder that you're supporting, make sure that they feel we've de-risked it as well. So the first question I have of you is, whose input do you think we should get to the design of this proof of concept? So at the end of it, you're going to get the nods or the shakes that you need to make a decision. Hmm. That's a good question. So, so we've got, you know, person one, person two, person three, and we'll need to have them lined up if, if we're going to move forward with uh, you or any other vendor for that matter. That sounds great. So, um, what I could support you with, um, is a, a prompt sheet I have just to help them open up their mind in terms of uh, how to articulate what their needs would be during this process. Um, and I'll ask the same of you, if I may, so that we can consolidate all these. And then before we get started, we'll, we'll know the superset uh, of the outcomes we're trying to figure out. Right. And then the second thing too, there's going to be a fair investment on, on your side in terms of the people that are going to put energies into this. What I've found is the most successful deployments literally roll off the end of a proof of concept because you're going to have people engaged in the tool and it's helpful to continue through because you're going to have now some champions that have already used the tool that can help 
create um, enthusiasm in the rest of the group that will follow on. Do you feel if we start a proof of concept at this time that you'll have everything you need to uh, execute on, a, on an immediate deployment? And if you're not sure, we can discuss that. But you know, at this point, is it obvious to you that you can't do that? Because I would be encouraging us to delay it until we can actually roll straight into a, a live project. Okay, so end role play. Okay. That was great. That was a lot of fun, Matt. So let's um, let's double click. I appreciated how you tied a few things that we've spoken about together in that that role play. Let me just highlight what I think I observed, and you can tell me whether I'm right or wrong. The first was I had a clear view of what I wanted to do next, but you made it clear to me that your time is valuable as well, and you were able to suggest a structure that would get you what you needed, what was important to you. And I think that many salespeople don't quite understand the latitude that they're afforded by the buyer to do what you just did without being offensive. You were just a matter of fact and and business-like. Let me just pause there for a moment. Is that what was happening? Yes, and that only came through a sense of healthy self-regard. I'm the doctor. You don't know what's good for you, so I'm going to help you mess, not mess up. Here's a question. What role does self-regard and self-perception play in your ability to have this conversation? If I feel less than you, my self-confidence will fall. This, you know, self-confidence, self-regard, it's enormous. It's such to the point that if you say to me, I want this proof of concept, and in my mind, you're elevated, I'm much more inclined to be, to do what you want. Um, because I don't deserve, I don't have the right to correct you or direct you. And that's why I always try to visualize myself in the doctor-patient mode going in. And I literally, I come from a sports background. Visualization is so powerful, such that just before a critically important call, I'll get myself in that mindset that I'm here to diagnose and prescribe. I'm not here as a servant to do what someone wants. Matt, thank you so much for joining us on, on The Cringe. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed our conversation today. Uh, Finney's Beautiful. I really enjoyed uh, talking about that topic and with you. So thanks for the great question. If you've enjoyed listening, follow me, Adam Clay, on LinkedIn. I'm regularly sharing insight and tips on the art of sales and the sales conversation. This podcast is produced and presented by Rainmakers, where we believe the sales conversation is everything. Check us out online at rnmkrs.com. Thank you.